the Commission defends a European model of sports. The main principles of this model are the principle of autonomy, of openness, of solidarity, and the interdependence of uh, the international federations. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And that was a spokesperson for the European Commission, Sonia Gospodinova, reacting to news of a proposed European football Super League, a breakaway move by some of the continent's top clubs. As you might just have heard, there was a big backlash from fans and from politicians, and the plan soon fell apart. But it raised some big questions about sport, politics democracy and competition in Europe today and we'll tackle those in a special podcast panel. If this would have played out in a legal setting it might have uh, gone to the advantage of the Super League clubs but the uh, the huge storm that was probably uh, started by Emmanuel Macron and, and Boris Johnson turned the events quite in a different direction. And later in the podcast we'll look at data privacy in Europe after a series of massive data leaks involving some of the biggest tech platforms. But first, it's been a big week in German politics. So let's check in with our own Chief Europe Correspondent in Berlin, Matt Karnitschnik. Hi, Matt. Hi there. So a big week in German politics, which we wanted to review with two candidates for Chancellor being selected We talked already a fair bit about the CDU-CSU battle for that nomination, and we'll get into that again more in a moment. But the first candidate this week to be selected was Annalena Baerbock of the Greens. We have it in our hand, and that's why I'm here today. Who may not be so well known to some people. So are you up for another 30-second challenge, everything you need to know about Annalena Baerbock in 30 seconds? Absolutely. Okay, the clock starts now. Well, she's 40 years old. She's originally from Lower Saxony around Hanover, although she's often associated with East Germany now because she's represented Brandenburg and Potsdam in the Bundestag. She became the head of the Greens, the co-head of the Greens, rather, in 2018, I believe. She grew up as a gymnast, a trampoline uh, gymnast. Uh, She studied international law, including in the UK, and she spent a couple of years in Brussels. Okay, (laughs) I think you just about about nailed it. Uh, Let's talk a bit more about Annalena Baerbock, though, uh, particularly the manner in which she was selected. How did the Greens choose her as the Chancellor candidate? And, you know, how did the process work? Well, it was a pretty gradual coronation, I would say. And by the end of it, I don't think anybody was really surprised that she got the nod. It was going to be between her and Robert Habeck, who was her co-leader of the party, and both were quite popular, both within the party and outside it. But the Greens, as this not just environmental movement, but a party that from its beginnings really championed feminism and women's rights and and gender parity, even in, in its leadership, it seemed natural that they would go with the female candidate, given that they had two very good candidates who were deemed to be equally qualified for the post. And in the end, that's what they did. Right. And and also, how would you characterize the differences between the two? Because it, it seemed like she had some strengths that might make her a kind of safer, if you like, a safer chancellor candidate for the Greens. Well, she, for one thing, is the younger of the two. She's also said to be maybe the more focused of the two. 
Habeck does have some experience as a regional politician. He was the environmental minister in Schleswig-Holstein, where he comes from a small state in the north of Germany. He studied philosophy. He's a children's book author. And I think of the two, Baerbock was seen to be maybe the more focused and maybe the one who would be better at kind of organizing a government if that is indeed what it comes to. I mean, on the other hand, she doesn't have any real governing experience, which is the biggest kind of mark against her, I would say, which is obviously a pretty serious shortcoming if you're talking about going from you know, basically having no governing experience to running the largest country in Europe. And yet I wouldn't rule her out because she does have a kind of charismatic appeal to people. And after 16 years of Merkel, it does feel like an air of change in Germany at the moment. Right. Well, that maybe brings us on to Armin Laschet, who was the other candidate who prevailed this week. He will be the Conservative nominee, which I guess in normal times would put you in poll position. But he is very much more the continuity candidate, right? He is very much in, in the Merkel mould. But what do you think it says about how he prevailed? Because in this battle with Markus Söder, the leader of the CSU, the Bavarian state premier, you know, at one point, it looked like the momentum was with Söder. How did Laschet kind of pull it out? And what does that tell us about him? Well, we've learned more about how he got it in the end over the last couple of days. And I'm not really sure that he so much pulled it out as that the old guard of his party insisted that he push forward and refused to make way for Söder. Now, Söder, listeners will remember, was the vastly more popular of the two, both within the general population and among conservative voters and indeed among a lot of conservative politicians. But there was this argument for Laschet among the old conservative hierarchy led by Wolfgang Schäuble, who is now the president of the Bundestag, the German parliament, but really the kind of elder statesman of the CDU. And, and he's been a CDU MP, I think, since 1972. So he's seen a lot of these battles. And, and he is somebody who really wanted to protect the primacy of the CDU over its smaller sister party, the CSU, which Söder leads. And even though he didn't originally support Laschet, he supported one of Laschet's rivals in the leadership contest a few months ago, he very much rallied behind him here in this battle. And apparently it came down to a meeting between Söder and Laschet, where Schäuble was also present on Monday evening in the German parliament, where Söder had just flown in uh, from Nuremberg, where he lives on a private jet. And it seems he might have anticipated a different resolution to this. This was going to be sort of the moment where Laschet was going to give up. Uh, but it was just the opposite. And Laschet and Schäuble basically uh, told Söder that the CDU was not going to let him have the candidacy. And so it was impossible at that moment for Söder to continue on because the CDU is, is so much bigger. It's about four times bigger than the CSU. And obviously, without the support of the larger party, there was no way forward. And their justification apparently was they needed to do this to protect the CDU itself. The larger question is, you know, did they sort of cut off their nose to spite their face here 
because Lachette is really quite unpopular. I think most people would say he's a decent man. People, you know, don't hate him. But given the choice between him and Soda, there's just a clear majority for Soda. And you have to wonder whether a lot of voters, a lot of conservative voters are just going to end up staying at home come election day. Right, because of course they don't have the choice between him and Souter. The, the voters now have a choice between three people who are officially designated, I think, as Chancellor candidates, Annalena Baerbock, Armin Laschet, and also uh, Olaf Scholz of the SPD. And I guess that takes us into a new phase, right, where voters are now looking forward. They will come to understand Angela Merkel no longer equals the CDU. And we already saw one poll which um, got a lot of attention, which showed the Greens uh, leaping into a big lead in the polls. How much, how much attention do you think we should pay to that poll? I think it's an indication of how frustrated people were by the decision of the CDU and, and, and CSU ultimately to endorse Laschet. You know, those numbers for the Greens will probably come down in the coming weeks as people's tempers calm, but it does show if nothing else, just how volatile the situation in Germany is right now. And that the CDU has a real uphill battle here. You know, you mentioned the the chancellor candidates, and there are three. But, you know, it's also worth remembering, and it might not be clear to people outside Germany, that these designations as a chancellor candidate are only party designations. It's not sort of an official designation as it would be, say, in the United States or somewhere where you're running on the ticket as the presidential candidate and only those people can be elected. The CDU could switch out Laschet, for example, at any point here during this campaign or even after the campaign. Ultimately, it comes down to who gets the most votes in the Bundestag after the election uh, when somebody is nominated to be chancellor. So even though this appears to be set in stone now, if he appears to be so disastrous in the coming months, as the polls suggest, there is an outside possibility that the conservatives could put someone else forward, be it Soda or somebody like Friedrich Merz, who is another conservative CDU member who, who ran against Laschet for the leadership of the CDU earlier this year. Okay, thanks, Matt. We'll let you go and bring in a super panel to tackle the European Super League debacle and the politics around it. And I promise we'll make it interesting for you, even if you're not a football fan. Our in-house football expert, Ali Walker, is here. Hi, Ali. Hi, thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Ali is uh, from the Western Isles of Scotland, so so of course he supports his local team, Manchester United. And uh, Reem is uh, with us, uh, as usual, in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello all, and I can see that Scotland is in a position of power today on this podcast. doesn't happen often. It's a first time for everything. That's true. Let the record show that uh, I have not abused that power to get lots of Scots on this show. Maybe I should. Uh, And Simon van Dorp is with us. Simon is our competition expert and competition when it concerns the law and business. Hey, Simon. Hi, good evening. Great to have you all with us. So, Ali, why don't you just start by giving us a very brief summary of of what the Super League proposal was and why it created such a fuss? Yeah, so Sunday night, 12 of Europe's um, super clubs, I guess you would call them, announced that they were breaking away from UEFA's existing elite competition, the Champions League, to set up their own rebel Super League. Six clubs from England, Man United, Man City, Chelsea, Liverpool, Arsenal and Spurs, 
three from Spain, Barcelona, Real Madrid, and Atletico Madrid, and three from Italy, AC Milan, Internazionale, and Juventus. Even before the split was announced, politicians were already up in arms against this proposal because they see it as creating you know, a closed shop, an Americanization of uh, European football. The 15 founder members of the Super League would have been permanent members, could never have been relegated from it, and there were only five limited spots for revolving clubs to join the league each season. But basically, these 15 clubs would share a 3.5 billion euro startup grant and, you know, the rich of European football would get richer. Right. So this did provoke an absolute torrent of uh, political reaction. It was amazing how quickly politicians jumped on this. And one of those was Emmanuel Macron, Reem. What did he have to say and, and why do you think he got so upset about this? Well, let me start by saying that Emmanuel Macron may sound like an extremely intellectual man, but he also loves, loves football. And I'm not saying that intellectuals can't love football, but it's perhaps something that people don't expect from Emmanuel Macron. So he is a diehard fan of this club called Olympique Marseille. And it's not the wealthiest of clubs in France. It's in a good position, but it's not the Paris Saint-Germain, for example. And it was really interesting because I certainly didn't expect this. He had a statement ready. It came out very quickly, and I'm going to read parts of it. The President of the Republic welcomes the position of French clubs to refuse to participate in a European football Super League project that threatens the principle of solidarity and sporting merit. So for him, it was about not moving into this uh, position where these super wealthy clubs would not have any competition and would basically siphon off any kind of real competition and real pizzazz that can exist in all the other leagues. And really, I have to say, like, we already think that the Champions League is full of stars and full of very big budget teams. Why did they need to break away and do the Super League? Mm. Yeah, well, it's interesting. So I guess he was saying it was about égalité and, and fraternité, right? Égalité and fraternité, those slogans very dear to the French. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like that, those were, those were the, his kind of key points. Ali, did you want to jump in briefly? What I found interesting on Sunday afternoon was that both Macron and Boris Johnson reacted to this at the stage it was just reported by media outlets, you know, before the Super League had officially launched with its kind of fanfare and press release. Um, it was interesting to me that they were, you know, trying to get ahead on this, you know, immediately to the forefront, standing against the concept of the Super League. You know, you have to, just, just one thing, you have to keep in mind, France is a country with huge fandom for football. Everyone watches football, uh, women, men, young, old, everyone has their team. You have to remember that, you know, ever since France won the World Cup, it really has become like the game of everyone in the street. That was the turning point, I would say, as someone who covered the World Cup in France in 1998, as obviously a very, very young reporter and um, it was amazing to see how it also grew during that time like due, at the beginning of the tournament the whole country wasn't into it but as it got going and of course the French team did so well that really was a turning point I think before then it didn't really feel like a kind of national game in the way that it does now but let's bring in Simon on this one because Reem mentioned the, the point that of course 
It's not like European football is super egalitarian at the moment. There is already a big gap between the kind of haves and the have-nots, if you like. And so one of the interesting things here, Simon, I think, was that politicians all piled on the outrage. But in terms of what they might actually be able to do kind of legally, politically, it actually wasn't so clear-cut, right? So in terms of whether this league was... Or I guess the question is, who was actually anti-competitive here, this league or the current setup, right? There was actually a dispute about whose side EU law might be on here, yeah? Not necessarily a dispute, but there, were, there are two sides to that argument. Yes, indeed. Competition law might not be as straightforward as one might think if you followed the popular backlash uh, to this uh, proposal. In the past, actually, often judges and competition authorities have looked at uh, sporting federations and FIFA and UEFA could be considered as a monopoly, as they're a regulator, and they also are the only ones to organize the Champions League for the moment, which also has a sort of um, a dual role. And here, I guess in their reaction to uh, what happened to the proposal of the Super League, they may have been considered to abuse that dual role because uh, they threatened with bans for clubs, with yeah. bans for players from their competitions. Well, that was good. One of the things that you, you wrote a very interesting piece for us about the kind of competition law view of this. And, you know, while, while it was kind of dressed up as, uh, you know, a lot of the media reporting, a lot of the way the fans saw it was kind of good guys, bad guys. I think one of the people you were talking to or, or your reporting revealed that if you look at this from a competition point of view, it could be seen as a monopoly versus a cartel, neither of which is particularly good things, right? Can you explain the difference? Yes, indeed. I mean, a cartel is a, normally a bunch of companies that come together and divide the market between them and exclude others from the pot of money, which would be what the Super League uh, clubs would be doing. They have a closed competition with 15 clubs. And the monopoly, yeah, that's what I explained before, the UEFA has a monopoly currently to organize the Champions League. Can I jump in there, though? Because the rest of that statement from Macron was very interesting because he fully comes out and supports what you're saying is a monopoly. So he says the French state will support all the steps taken by the LFP, the FFF, that's the French Football Federation, UEFA and FIFA to protect the integrity of federal competitions, whether national or European. Yeah. So he's taken his position very, you know, it's very clear. Well, this is the thing that UEFA got to portray themselves very much as the good guys, the defenders of the little guy. And and as I say, if you look at this from a different perspective and, and the fact that Champions League has made a certain number of teams in certain countries super rich and exacerbated the differences between those teams and the rest. You know, it's just not quite as black and white as I think it was uh, often portrayed. Ali, what, well, let's circle back to what's happened, because when we originally even decided to talk about this topic, you know, it was burning bright, but already it feels like the thing is, is falling apart. What happened and, and why? Yeah, I mean, it was a bit... I don't know, you would maybe compare it to like the Fire Festival or something, right? A kind of wildly extravagant idea that degenerated into a total shambles. By Tuesday night, less than 48 hours after the league was officially launched, all six of the English clubs had backed out under pressure from their fans, under pressure from national politicians. Wednesday morning, Inter pulled out... Atletico Madrid pulled out, AC Milan pulled out, Juventus have now pulled out, and a 
at the moment, as we record, only Real Madrid and Barcelona are apparently left in. So, you know, maybe Real Madrid and Barcelona can just play each other every Wednesday for the next... Uh, it can be a classical every yeah, Wednesday. For the next, I would for, pay to watch for that. For the next right. 23 yeah. years, like the uh, contract said, <laughs> I think. So, uh, you yeah. know, the thing that struck me the most is that, as we were saying, you know, the, some of these uh, football clubs have been taken over by oligarchs and extremely wealthy people for many years. Why did this particular league strike such a reaction from the politicians when this takeover by these oligarchs and others hasn't so far? Yeah, and I guess the question is, will they then, you know, is is that it? Do they move on or do they actually take a look at some of the issues? I mean, one of the suggestions in the UK was to try and mimic the German structure of football clubs where the majority of the ownership officially, in most cases, is with the fans. It's called the 50 plus one rule. So 50% plus one, you know, ownership rests with the fans. And it was notable that German clubs, the two big German clubs, did not take part in this from the beginning. However, it was also noticeable that Paris Saint-Germain didn't, despite not having a structure like that. Um, very, very different ownership, to put it mildly. So, Simon, do you have any thoughts? Do you think that there's an appetite, you know, for example, here in Brussels at the European Commission to dive into these issues? Or are they going to quietly move on? Yeah, I think if this whole political storm wouldn't have unfolded, events might have turned in the direction of the Super League clubs. Actually, there was a Spanish judge who um, froze all the threats of the UEFA to... Um, to exclude the clubs and said that that was actually anti-competitive or at least um, disproportionate uh, threats. So if this would have played out in a legal um, setting, it might have uh, gone to the advantage of the Super League clubs. But the uh, the huge storm that was probably uh, started by Emmanuel Macron and, and Boris Johnson turned the events quite in a different direction. What's interesting to me there is that, you know, in football, you rarely see kind of unanimity over anything really and yeah over the 48 hours politicians fans it seemed like the entirety of Europe who was interested in this was against the Super League and you know the 12 it seemed like the only people backing it were the 12 club owners even their own players and managers were coming out and saying hey we don't want anything to do with this. We'd rather not be involved. This isn't what sport is. One thing that struck me also is the EU, in some ways, you would think might have um, seen something of itself in this Super League. Uh, you know, it's European integration. Very hard to get kicked out and uh, increasingly difficult to join. But somehow uh, they didn't see it that way. Anyway, we'll leave it there. But one of the rules about European Super Leagues is this never dies. There will be another proposal along these lines sooner or later. It's a bit of an evergreen, but just really surprising that this one, which seemed like the big one, if you like, burned out so quickly. Anyway, we'll leave it there. Ali, Reem and Simon, thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And stay with us as we dive into the data leaks of nearly a billion people in recent weeks and why privacy regulators around Europe are starting to question the EU's ability to protect the private data of its own citizens. With people taking matters into their own hands and turning to the courts and tensions rising between regulators, it really does feel like make or break time for Europe's privacy system. That's coming up right after this. In the world of politics and policy, information is abundant. Insight is rare. Politico's premium intelligence service, Politico Pro, is designed for policy professionals. Our expert team keeps you one step ahead of the powers and players driving the policy decisions impacting your industry. 
from financial services to trade, technology, cybersecurity, and more. Politico Pro delivers breaking scoops, deep analysis, and forward-looking insight across a range of sectors. Want to learn more? EU Confidential listeners can benefit from a two-week complimentary trial of Politico Pro. Simply email pro at politico.eu with the code CONFIDENTIAL. Again, that's pro at politico.eu. Let's turn our attention to Facebook and a major security breach exposing the personal information of about half a billion Facebook users. Facebook says it fixed the issue when the initial breach happened, but critics say it's more complicated than just plugging that leak. LinkedIn says it's not been hacked, even though data from about half a billion users has been posted for sale online. Security concerns over a popular new app are causing some users to think twice before downloading it. Clubhouse. Have you heard of it? In recent weeks, the data of more than a billion people showed up on hacker forums online. The information included people's phone numbers and email addresses and came from LinkedIn, Facebook and Clubhouse, the new social media app that's audio only. Even the EU's own data protection chief and other EU leaders were among those whose information was exposed. While data leaks and privacy breaches aren't exactly new, the reaction from these companies about the latest breaches has some critics raising their eyebrows. And while regulators across Europe have sprung into action, some wonder whether they will be able to rein in big tech. What does this say about the EU's flagship law, the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR? Vincent Manancourt is our technology reporter here in Brussels. Hi, Vincent. Hi, Andrew. So before we dive into the reaction here, can you just give us a sense of how significant these breaches are? Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, data leaks are pretty common, sadly. But I think what stands out here is the sheer number of people affected and the names of the platforms involved. So within days of each other, you have Facebook and LinkedIn, two big name social networks, which leaked half a billion people's data each. And then Clubhouse, which is a newcomer on the social media scene, join the club, leaking customer information online. You mentioned this in your intro, but these leaks also affected high-profile people. So me and a colleague, Lawrence Serralis, were able to contact the EU Justice Commissioner Didier Reinders and a, a government head, Xavier Bettel in Luxembourg, on their personal mobile phones using details from the breach. Now imagine what sophisticated hackers could do with that information. So how do the platforms explain what's happened? So Andrew, that's where it gets interesting. Uh, The three platforms all came out with very similar lines, which is that this information was all essentially public and therefore not a hack or a data breach. Clubhouse, for instance, called the reports misleading and false. LinkedIn said this wasn't a data breach and that no private member account data was made available. The same goes for Facebook, which declined our offer to comment in this episode, but said in a blog post that the data was not hacked. Instead, publicly available data was scraped from its systems. This is what the tech platforms are saying. So in other words, nothing to see here. This is not a breach. Okay, but you've been speaking to someone who uh, doesn't agree with that. Tell me who you've been speaking to. Yeah, so Ravi Naik, who's a legal director at the AWO Data Rights Organization, says the idea that the data is already public is problematic. It's an interesting choice of words that Facebook have taken. obviously said it's not a breach. I think if you look at the definition of data breach in the GDPR, it's wider than just you've been hacked and therefore there's a breach. The definition encompasses the unauthorized 
access and disclosure of personal information, I think you're likely to find this meets that criteria. I can see why the companies are maybe trying to hide behind that until there has been some further action. But if there are, is this much information out there and individuals are unaware of it and have not been able to attempt to secure it back for themselves, the companies really need to take some responsibility for that, leaving aside whether it's a data breach or not. It's not good enough to just say, well, it's out there and there's not much we can do. They should proactively be trying to get this data back down and secure people's information. Okay, and as you mentioned, data leaks and hacks are pretty common and by no means just limited to these three platforms. But these happen to be the most recent examples. And of course, they aren't limited to social media either. They can come from companies or government agencies, which collect your data for many different reasons, right? Um, No, yeah, you're right. So everyone's collecting data these days, including governments. But I think what we're seeing here is that there is a bit of a pattern starting to develop when these tech platforms face scrutiny for what they've done with our data. The first, as I've explained, is that they say the data is public, so there's no issue. And then because they view the data as public, they don't tell government regulators, which they should do under EU regulations, and they definitely don't tell users. Sometimes they just ignore it. This happened in January when an unnamed organisation was hit by ransomware and paid just under £6.5 million to recover their files, but didn't do anything to show up the vulnerability in their networks. We've also seen companies blaming the intern. This happened when executives from an American business software company testified before U.S. Congress in the massive SolarWinds hack. Is it true that some servers at your company were secured with this crackerjack password, SolarWinds123? Congressman, I believe that was a password that a intern used on one of his GitHub servers back in 2017. And then sometimes what the tech platforms will do is they'll call it misinformation, fake news. Or if it's truly a hack, they'll call it sophisticated, implying there's nothing that could have been done to prevent it. Okay, so this brings us to uh, the famous GDPR, which was Europe's attempt really to tackle data privacy, to give some teeth to efforts to keep data private. And it sounds like, obviously, despite that law having gone into effect, people's data is still at risk, right? Yeah, so these recent breaches affected everyone on the planet. There was more than a billion people affected. Within that, millions and millions of people uh, in Europe. I think Italy was the most affected with 35 million people. And what's also been interesting and far more, potentially far more problematic for the EU is that you've now got regulators in places like Italy and Germany in effect, circumventing the EU's privacy enforcement system within days of each other by launching their own investigations into big tech platforms. And this isn't how it's supposed to work, but it highlights growing frustration at the slow pace of enforcement of the EU's data protection regulations. Since most of these companies like Facebook, Google, Microsoft and Apple have headquarters in Ireland, it's the Irish Data Protection Commission in Dublin, which has the authority to lead these kinds of investigations. And it did launch an investigation into Facebook uh, as a result of this leak. And they say that there potentially could have been a breach of the GDPR, which Facebook is denying. But some people feel that leaving things to the Irish regulator is maybe not the best solution. Here's Ravi again. On the one hand, obviously, the DPC's announcement was very welcome. But the cynic in me has a few doubts about whether it's quite all it's 
been hyped up to be. And he says this for two reasons. One is that critics say the Irish Data Protection Commission has kicked many investigations like this one into the long grass. So there's little hope of Facebook being brought to justice in effect. And two, because other regulators who have been a lot more aggressive in enforcing data protection standards may now hold back because the Irish have gone in. Okay, and so you mentioned that regulators in other countries like Germany and Italy also launched their own investigations. Why is that so significant? I mean, that might sound quite normal to people listening across Europe that they would expect their national uh, regulator to take action. What does this tell us about Europe's approach to data protection? The key here is that under the GDPR, Europe's flagship data protection rulebook, Ireland takes the lead on the majority of investigations into big tech platforms. But so far, they've only finalised one fine against these companies, a relatively small penalty against Twitter. And basically, some of the more aggressive regulators in Italy, in Germany, in France are getting restless, uh, which is why we're seeing them taking matters into their own hands against the kind of standard protocol as to how these things should be functioning. Um, it has to be said, in Ireland's defence, these are still the early days of GDPR. It's three years in. You know, this is a big, big rule book that's complicated to enforce. And they're up against armies and armies of lawyers. So they have to tread carefully when they take on these big companies. But look, the perceived slow speed and lack of enforcement thus far has people like Ravi feeling like the issues just aren't being solved fast enough. And people are instead turning to the courts. So I think there is a bottleneck at the regulators. But I think what you're now starting to see instead is private actions. So I think the sea change and the bigger acts will come by private enforcement. But the problem with that is the costs of litigation are just a barrier for most individuals. So yeah, with, with people taking matters into their own hands and turning to the courts and tensions rising between regulators, it really does feel like make or break time for Europe's privacy system. Okay, we'll keep a close eye on how these battles all play out and how lawmakers and regulators respond in the coming months and years ahead. Thanks very much, Vincent. Thanks, Andrew. And we'll be sure to include a link to Facebook's statement in our show notes, along with a link to Vincent's story. And before we go, we should say that it's been a big week for EU tech policy. On Wednesday, it unveiled plans to regulate artificial intelligence. You can read about that on our website, politico.eu. And while you're there, you can also check out the other big news in Brussels this week, agreement on a climate law that puts Europe ahead of the United States and China in terms of its ambitions. We'll be sure to come back to that issue in the weeks and months ahead. But for now, please subscribe to EU Confidential or follow us so you get every episode automatically every week, wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get in touch with us directly. Just drop us an email. The address is podcast at politico.eu. We do try to reply to everyone. But for now, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.